I'm Steve Tung. Hello, I'm Trevor Singfield. And with us tonight as well, Lee Boyce, who I bumped into at the Orient uh, Newcomers evening last night. How are you, Lee? Yeah, all good. Good, and on a momentous week for our club, we're delighted to have in the studio with us a former O's player, winger Tony Kelly, appeared nearly 50 times for us out of his 200 plus games in uh, his Football League career after joining from Berry in 1995. He went through uh, a change of manager at the club from Pat Holland to Tommy Taylor, so we'll get his thoughts on what it's like for players when a new man, who they probably don't know, takes charge of them. But throughout his career of seven league clubs and about eight non-league, unless we missed any, uh, Tony, on his own admission, had a gambling problem. In fact, it became an addiction, which has led him to set up the Red Card Gambling Support Project for anybody with similar problems. Um, Tony, a warm welcome. Um, how are you? Are you in a good place, as people say these days? Yes, all right, Steve. Not too bad, thanks. Yeah, a lot better place than I used to be, that's for sure. Excellent. Well, a warm welcome to you. We'll Thank talk you. a lot more about gambling and your past experiences and your time at the Orient, um, plus the support project you, you set up. We'll also look back, as we always do, at the last O's game, that very welcome win over Warsaw, and ahead to the next game at Grimsby. And we'll talk about our new players, that interesting evening last night at the stadium. Um, I went with, with Lee and heard all the season's newcomers, plus Martin Ling and Chief Scout Steve Foster. So how do we think they've done? New boys like Josh Wright, Connor Wilkinson and Lee Angle, uh, Louis Dennis and young Loney George Marsh. They were all there last night, which was a good turnout. But our starting point uh, this programme has to be the appointment of a new head coach, who we're going to hear from shortly. Uh, we'll probably say manager at some stage, but we know uh, officially he's a head coach under a director of football. He was finally appointed on uh, National Boss Day, appropriately, uh, surprising a few supporters, I'm sure, uh, as his name didn't come up all that early in, in the bookmakers' lists. But um, Trevor, when it became apparent it was going to be Carl Fletcher, what were your first thoughts and, and how do you feel about it now? Well, first thoughts was probably like most people. I, um, I managed to keep a lid on any uh, comments I would make until we knew a bit more about him. and. As it comes to light, he, he seems a, a reasonable guy. The things I like about him, the plus points, he comes across as a leader, um, captaining an international football team. He's no mean feat regardless what level. And uh, he's played an FA Cup final, and he's been in the 18 to 23 at Bournemouth. And he just seems, I find, uh, we could make a little good mash out of it at the moment. Uh, Lee, what was your reaction to the appointment? Well, when the name was first mentioned, like everyone else, a bit shocked and not over excited at the time. But like I put on Twitter the other day, on three days of thinking about it and looking into it, I really, really warmed to the idea. I was quite happy when he got appointed in the end. Right. So the guess, the the one thing that, that people have mentioned, I guess, is is the lack of experience. Um, we'll, we'll go into that in a minute, but we ought to say a bit, um, Trevor, about the, the job that Ross has done in particular. Well, it's well documented, the job Ross has done, and he, he gains, well, legend status for being at the club for so many years and taking over when asked to do a very difficult job. and. Look, let's hope he gets the, the third successive victory Saturday, as we know he's taking charge. And then that gives the new guy a massive platform. We've been 19 points nicely up the table. And hopefully, 
onwards and upwards, but Ross is going to be held so high and uh, everybody's esteemed for forever at the Orient for, for what he had to do when Justin Sadly passed. OK, well, let's see if we can hear from him. I uh, got hold of him at the training ground earlier this afternoon. Look at everything and assess everything um, and then see what, what's working. I think it's not always like you just come in and rip up the rule book. Um, I think, like I said, because we have got good people here, good players here. So um, there might just be small tweaks here and there, but, but um, I think like on, on the whole, like I said, um, you know, the club's in a good place um, and we're just looking to kick on from that. Have you been able to watch many games, either live or on, on video? Yeah, I've seen, I've seen a fair few. So I've seen probably the last six. Um, so, but, you know, like I say, it's, it's sometimes when you do the games, obviously different to seeing day to day. Um, I think that's important, getting to know the people. And there's always going to be a period of um, transition and assessment and, and just getting to know one another. Um, so, like I said, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to getting stuck in. Like I said, I've got some good people here to, to work with and um, some good players to, to kind of to, to work with as well. I think it's fair to say most supporters have said, give the man a chance. One or two have pointed out a certain lack of recent first-team management experience. What would uh -huh. you say to them? Um... Yeah, I mean, I don't know, I can't lie about it, can I? It's true, isn't it? So, but I think, you know, I think you only have to look at other clubs um, around, you know, Swansea to a degree, you know, Nottingham Forest, you know, kind of getting their managers that are, that are kind of uh, maybe not at the forefront of everyone's mind um, and how they're doing so well. So I think, I'd say, you, you know, experience is only good if you use it in the right way. Um, I said my experiences are different. Um, and obviously working at Bournemouth and obviously <coughs> coaching different ages, coaching different levels um, and obviously playing at all different levels um, gives you all them kind of experiences. So I think everyone, whoever takes a job, whoever gets a job, they're always going to have different from someone else or, or everyone's going to be different in certain ways. Just getting them experiences to use them as the best you can and, and feed them across to, to what you want going forward. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's like I said, you, you've You've got to be able to back yourself, um, be confident in your own abilities, um, and making sure you just try and do things your right, the right way that you want to do them. But you would say it was unfair to judge you on your time at Plymouth, which was a difficult time for the club, obviously. Yeah, I think, again, I, don't think, I think it's difficult. I think every club that ever goes through um, difficult patches, I think it's, it's very difficult. You, no two clubs will ever be the same. Um, I think the time that I was there, obviously playing and then going into the management with administration and not getting paid for, for months and months and, and just everything that went with it, I think it's is very difficult to compare with anything else. Yes, you know, again, in hindsight, I know is I was too young and didn't have the experience, but you can only try. And I think that experience um, was, was, you know, arguably the best thing that happened to me. I think if it had gone well or, or really well, I would never have gone and got the, the knowledge and the experience that I did at Bournemouth and, and, and learning my trade, so to speak. So um, I'm, I'm thankful for that. And it was a tough time. Um, and all the people that work there that weren't getting paid and, and the players that weren't getting paid know that. Um, thankfully, they're in a lot better position now and financially secure. So um, I think you can't, you can't really compare too much. But like I said, you can only use your experiences and try and learn from them and, and help them to, to improve going forward. And football will be what it is. You'll be going back there very quickly with the Orient on yeah. Tuesday. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, amazing how it comes around like that. But um, yeah, no, it's it's um, yeah. Like I said, I lived down there for for four plus years, and um, my kids were really young when I was down there. So so there are some good memories in there somewhere. 
But um, yeah, like it's a difficult time, but no, I still have friends down there and stuff. So it's a nice part of the world. So yeah, be looking forward to it. And style of play, what can we expect from Orient? Um, you have to wait and see, wouldn't you? So, but no, I think I think it's um, yeah. I mean, there's there's certain things, certain principles that I want, um, and I think it's you know if you can get them in in a day to day and get them on a on a regular basis, um, it kind of it, it it doesn't mean too much in terms of what formation you play because you still got have the same kind of principles. Um, but you know, I, I think first and foremost, and I think anyone you know, whether you're a fan, player, manager coach whatever it is I think you, you know you want the players to a work hard you want them to try and do what as best they can for the club and you want them to try and enjoy it while they're doing it so I think if we can get them then then the other stuff will kind of take care of itself and a message finally then to Orient supporters um yeah just that that you know like I said I'm, I'm honored to be, be able given this position um obviously you know we'll be working hard to to try and improve and, and keep getting better and um, and sometimes there'll be big margins, sometimes there'll be small margins, but um, I think everyone's, I think we're very lucky that we've got a, a good band of fans that are, are knowledgeable and, and understand demanding as well, which is which is great because, you know, I mean, I, I make the demands, A, on myself and on, on the people around me as well, which is which is what we want. Um, and and we'll just, like I said, we'll try and do our best every game we play. The very best of luck, then. Lovely, thank you. There we are, Carl Fletcher speaking at the training ground just, just a few hours ago. Uh, let's, let's have a look briefly back at his career for those who, who haven't caught up with all the details. As, as a player, he, he was a Welsh international midfielder, 36 international caps. Um, Bournemouth, West Ham, Palace with Joby McEnough and, and Plymouth were his main clubs. Played in the Premier League and uh, FA Cup final for, for West Ham. I hope nobody's seriously suggesting we shouldn't employ someone but just because he once played for West Ham, which was a suggestion on social media, I think, when his name was first mentioned. He was captain of, of Palace and Plymouth and, and of Wales, which says something about him, probably. And um, while at Plymouth, he became their player-manager, as he was alluding to there, aged only 31 yeah. and, and later the manager. So he had about a year and a half in management at League Two level. Uh, he was credited with saving them from relegation to the conference in that first year um, when they had very bad financial problems, but he was sacked then when they were in the bottom four about halfway through his second season. So his win percentage in the end doesn't look great. In those circumstances, it was, it was barely 25% of wins. So he went back to Bournemouth as a youth team coach. He got some good results for them, uh, brought players through to the first team. And more recently, as we know, he's been in charge of their loan signings. All these premier clubs um, seem to have vast numbers of players out on loan these days. Uh, Bournemouth have got people on loan at places like, from non-league clubs like Eastleigh to Jermaine Defoe at Rangers. One is at Forest Green, which is the only one I could find in League Two. Plus, they've got players at Wickham and Gillingham. So those are the sort of places he'll have been watching matches. Though, uh, as he said, he, he, he's reckon to have watched about the last half a dozen Orient games, basically, on uh, mainly on video. Now, Tony, um, you've played under a lot of managers. Um, you've been there when managers have changed. What, what do players feel, essentially, when a new manager, who they really probably don't know much about, comes in? I think when a new manager comes in, generally, everyone gets a boost. Um, whether it's right or wrong, but players seem to give that extra 10% when a new manager comes in. You want to impress the new manager. Um, and let's be honest about it, some players will, will suck up to a manager just to get liked, etc. It's just the nature, nature of the game. That's the way it is. That's the way some squads are. But, but it does give the players a boost. Yeah, and I think that, that 
you know, as I said before, whether it's right or wrong, that the next match and the, the new manager's in charge, that everyone's going to give 10% extra, you know, that's why generally you get those results when a new manager comes in. You get that, you get that turn of events. That's, and that's the reason why. It ought to give everyone an incentive, doesn't it? Because the, the players who are in the team will, will want to keep their places. And above all, perhaps, the players who haven't been playing so much think they've got something to prove. Yeah, I think that's an important point in terms of squad players. Players that are on the fringe, I've been there, where I've been on the fringe of, of a squad, not being a regular and a new manager comes in. Um, I can give an example of when Lou Macari uh, took over at Stoke from Alan Ball <clears throat> and I wasn't a regular at Stoke, in and out of the side and then when Lou Macari came in, um, straight away put me in a side and then you know, I, was, I was starting games on a regular basis. So yeah, it's, it's different for different players, managers see different things. Yeah, but it gives all the players a boost. And yeah, for the ones on the fringe, they want, they've got a point to prove. Yeah, and they want to improve, impress that new manager. Does his reputation from a, a manager's mm -hmm. playing career, does that impress anyone? Is it important? To, does it help? Does it matter? In my opinion, <clears throat> in my opinion, it, it shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter, in my opinion, in terms of whether that manager's uh, managed that premiership level, whether he's managed, uh, you know, league, league one or championship level. You know, it's, it all depends what he brings to the table. It all depends how he... Uh, connects with the players, it all, all depends about tactical side of it. So, you know, it's not necessarily that someone that's come from a higher league is all of a sudden going to be, you know, a great manager for that particular club. You, make, you mentioned Lou Macari and Alan Ball mm. there. Who, who did you actually enjoy working with, with your managers? <laughs> I, I would say Lou Macari, um, but simply because um, he, was, he was one of them that he wasn't a ranter and raver. Uh, in terms of half-time team tours, etc., or you know, slaughtering players in front of people, embarrassing players, which I've seen other managers do, uh, and saying personal things. So on that side of it, he'd call you into the office and have a one-to-one -one with you. So his man management is absolutely brilliant. Uh, Fitness-wise, I think is well known uh, within the football world in terms of his stringent uh, fitness fitness regimes he done, and then that helped me as a player anyway to keep me super fit. Uh, so yeah, I think Lou Macari, he understood as well the fact that although, whether it's Alan Ball, whether it's Pat Holland, whoever it was that was in charge of me throughout my career, uh, because of my uh, issues with gambling, my form was sporadic. So my form was up and down, and uh, you know, but Lou Macari, for whatever reason, seemed to uh, appreciate what I did have, um, but obviously also couldn't quite understand why one week I was, you know, man of the match, and next week I was in a different planet. <laughs> Come on to that gambling that you, that you yeah. referred to later. But what about the two you had at Orient, Pat Holland and Tommy Taylor? Yeah, Pat obviously played in the same position as me, um, so I was more or less a right winger at Orient. Um, and I think Pat was one of them that also <laughs> used to tear his hair out in terms of my sporadic form. Um, but in terms of one to one, got on very well with Pat. Um, as you see, in my two-year career at Orient, uh, it was always up and down and in and out of the side. And obviously, you know, there's reasons for that. Well, Trevor and, uh, and Lee, um, we've, we've heard from Carl there. It's water under the bridge now, but um, were there any of the other supposed candidates who you, who you were particularly impressed with, whose names come up? What sort of thing were you looking for? Like I said, I, I didn't really have a preference of the manager to see, succeed Ross because we knew it was going to be a difficult appointment, whatever happens. Um, personally, I'm glad of the age of the new manager, because I, I, I'm beginning to think management now is becoming to a lot younger man's uh, game, and it seems that they generate newer ideas than the, the elder statesmen, you know, like your Bobby Robsons of past days gone by. Even now, the England manager's just a 50-year-old, where he's normally be a lot of older. And um, I'm pleased that he 
that's been handed a role genuinely and not a case of who he is because we have the general turnover of managers, turn up, do a job, turn up, do a job, as simple as that. But now, hopefully, we hope he succeeds full stop. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm quite happy with that. My, my own conclusion, for what it's worth, I don't know if you'd agree, is that it is virtually impossible to predict whether any given manager going into any given club is going to succeed or not. I know people will say, well, that Pep Guardiola, he had quite a good chance going into <laughs> Manchester City, and that German fellow who went to Liverpool, he'd he done pretty well with Borussia Dortmund, and he should have had a good chance. But otherwise, would you agree that, that really, and even with Justin, people will say, oh, yes, we knew Justin was going to be great, but they didn't really, did they? Well, no one knows if anybody's going to be great. I mean, I, I think, isn't it, Mourinho did sort of study under Bobby Robson and then gets into the game and yeah, he achieved okay. So this fella's studied under Eddie Howe, who gets a lot of plaudits. I mean, he come with a very, very good message from Eddie Howe. So he's been looking at the game a long, long time now. Okay, role, loan role manager. But he's still left that cushy number, maybe. Decent salary. He's testing himself now. So, yeah. Lee, what did you think of, of names like Colin Calderwood, Kevin Nolan, who we knew a bit about, that, that appeared quite prominently in the, the betting lists early on? I never, none of them excited me. I, like, I got asked a question before and there was no one I could like, stand out manager that I really wanted. The one thing I've said myself, stipulated for uh, the whole time, is that I want someone who's going to come into this club and, and to buy into the club, not just turn up and manage the team and that's it and like, look to his next move and all that. I wanted someone who's going to come in, as Justin did, and buy into the whole club, into the, into the fan base, the lot. Listening to Carl Fletcher and hearing what he said, like when he before he even signed a or when he signed a contract, uh, the first thing he wanted to do was speak to Kerry Edinburgh. For me, that's the man. We've got a man who's now who's going to buy into this club. All this for me, we need an experienced manager. I don't buy into it. We're, we're League Two. These these experienced managers. They've gone around, they, they may have won a promotion, they've also had a good few seconds. So, what you just said, we don't know whether any of them's going to be a success. But, as Trevor said, I like the thought, I've always liked the thought of having a younger manager coming in, fresh ideas, who's worked in the Premier League, maybe like as he has done, under other managers. I mean, let's get it right, Eddie Howe's probably going to be the next England manager. So, he's not working, up, working under a nobody. He's probably picked up a load of, uh, load of tips and all that, and... and He's got a good knowledge, and he, but he's experienced that, that low of when he was at Plymouth, of getting relegated, of being at a club that is in trouble, and that, that's, that's going to stand him in good stead. Without a shadow of a doubt, that's going to stand him in good stead. Who knows whether he's going to be a success, but like I say, I've, I've bought into it now. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Well, that's good to hear, and admitting actually that he was too young at Plymouth. But I mean, you follow the, the social, a lot of the social media comment. Uh, some people appear to be judging him on on just what happened in eighteen months there. Well, I think I see a few few things from Plymouth fans today, and they're certainly impressed with him. So, I mean, they ain't holding nothing against him. Whether they'll treat him the same after after we beat him on on a <laughs> Tuesday night, I don't know. Like you know, but no, but. Uh, Listen, I mean, like I said, people, some people want experienced managers and they're disappointed because we haven't got an experienced manager. Personally, like I just said, like, that's not for me. So everyone's got their own opinion, haven't they? But hopefully it'll it, it settle down quickly. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, he's got a great backroom staff, Ross. If he uses Ross to Ross's potential, he, his, his job's half done for him. 
Yes, interesting and, and fair enough that they should have kept the same background staff for now. Um, it, it was clearly, Trevor, a, a part of the deal that, that a new man shouldn't be allowed to bring his own people in because they would keep Ross and Danny Webb and, of course, Joby, who, who he knows. Um, but there will come a time won't there when perhaps they have to be judged as well. Yes, that's definitely going to happen in the, the long term of it, hopefully. I don't want it to happen in the short term, but the reality is somebody upstairs at the Orient may turn around and say, well, the coaching is not working because of the manager of this. What happens if this bloke lasts six months, nine months? Then another bloke comes in, lasts six months, nine months. I don't think the Orient is based like that anymore. They will give the fellow the chance. But somebody somewhere may have and say, well, hold on, you fans ain't going to like this but we've got to get rid of Danny, Joby and Ross and we're going to have a complete clear out because we can only go on with the memory adjusting for so long and then we've just got to draw a line under this because disappointment is, is a very tough appointment because you could end up going through manager after manager seeking what you want and not getting it. But hopefully it makes a nice little marriage and we, we can go with the continuality of... Upwards, because that's the only way you're going to go at the moment, is upwards. And it is uh, only an 18-month contract as well, which is, which is worth pointing out, so it goes through to, to the end of next season, by which time we, we hope he will, have, he will have improved the club and, and we'll all be looking back on it very positively. We did hear last night from at this uh, meeting from Martin Ling that they have taken exactly the same approach as on the two previous appointments of, of Steve Davis and, and Justin. That is, uh, they had 50 applications this time, apparently. They sifted that down to six who Martin then uh, met informally over a coffee. He says he likes to just get the feel of the, of the person he's meeting up with. He then made a short list of four, which was a, apparently one more than, uh, than normal. No real clues as, as to who the other three were. Uh, although I think he did, he did imply that, that uh, one or two people might have almost have ruled themselves out because as I say, they wanted to bring their own assistants in and so on. And um, although he was aware of the lack of experience, um, Carl eventually became the first choice of, of uh, the panel, as it were, of Martin Ling, Matt Porter, the director, and Danny Macklin. And, and Carl then had FaceTime with, uh, with Kent Teague and Nigel Travis. So they feel they've done their due diligence, so that, that's uh, as much as they can do. It is Carl Fletcher, and I'm sure majority of, of supporters, to be fair, um, as majority have been saying on, on social media, uh, will get behind him and, and will back him. So the very least we can do is to wish him well. Well, he comes in, of course, on the back of a wave uh, that has brought us two wins and a draw from, from three games with Ross. Uh, but even better if, if Ross, who's in charge at Grimsby, can uh, get another good result to finish that off on Saturday. Port Vale and Warsaw at home and, and Northampton away, which put us back in touch with a, a good number of teams, really, only just above us. Um, Trevor, following that deserved win at, at Northampton, we went a goal down to Walsall, and when we met at half-time in the, the Laurie Cunningham bar, we were a little bit concerned, weren't we? Yeah, as, as normal, we don't like seeing ourselves a goal down, but they, they, they fought back really well in the second half, and a lovely goal, which I missed, of um, Joe Widdison, sadly. But seeing it back on uh, the videos, fantastic. It was a difficult pitch, and um, I thought it was a fully deserved, deserved win in the end, and I think we were all a bit miffed why the number 25 for... Uh, McDonald, the left winger. He had a terrific first half, and uh, but Wilkinson did drop deep to protect... Uh, What's it at the back? 
Yes, Juddy was a Juddy at the back. He, he looked really struggling, but he he he's he done the ninety. Good luck to him. And then, like you say, kind of put the the third in, and then he tainted himself a little bit. But no, I was really pleased with the determination on on a tricky tricky surface. It was a good day. Yes, McDonald, the little left winger, really did seem to be taking us to the cleaners first half, and and uh, fair enough for the Walsall manager to say that that they really had the better of that first half. But then, um, uh, by the time we were two one up, he'd, he'd actually gone off, which was uh, which was useful. I don't know if anyone backed Joe Widdison for our first goal, but <laughs> congratulations if you did, and and that really lifted the whole place, didn't it? The second one was was a gift, really, but but Craig Clay did well to. Uh, uh, to stay calm and, and set Matty Harold up. And the third one, uh, nicely taken by Connor, who, who became our, our leading scorer then with, I think it's about three and four games now. And then he, he marred his afternoon by getting sent off uh, not far away from us down there in the West Stand, a straight red, which unfortunately means a, a three-match ban. Was that a bit unlucky or, or a bit indisciplined, do you think? Um, no complaints. He's got, he's got the fella around the throat. After an elbow's come his way, maybe they should both have gone. But yeah, he's got a temper, but you don't want to you don't want to take that out of his game. Young player, look, he's going to be he's going to be gutted because he's he's on a good run of form. He is the main striker, but don't want him to take it out of his game, you know. And uh, he's have to sit there and watch the games now, I'm afraid. But yeah, yeah, was a, you can't have no complaints really. Lee did look a little bit shamefaced last night, didn't he? But he also made a point about the amount of stick that strikers take in this league. Yeah, I mean, he, he said last night, I mean, he, he got a lot of stick for it last night, but uh, he said last night, he said, like, in, in like these lower leagues, you get a centre-half that's coming, that straight away they're putting their studs down you, down you coming in here, pinching you, like, digging you. He said, you've got to stand up for yourself, which is, which is spot on. You've got to stand up for yourself, otherwise they're just going to take liberties. And he, he admitted, he said, look, I w he went over the top with it, went too too far, and now he's got he's put his hands up, apologised and taken a punishment. But you don't you, you don't see what like what the defenders give to the strikers, and, and they've got to stand up, they've got to be strong. I mean, we'll see it against Port Vale when they try to throw him over the over the uh, <laughs> over the railings, like you know what I mean. He stood up then as well, right? Like, you know, I mean, he's a good lad, really. Yes, unfortunately, though, it is a three-match ban, and uh, I guess that Louis Dennis might get a chance up at, at Grimsby. Matt, Matt Harold, uh, Trevor, seems to me to have done exceptionally well since he came in. Yeah, he's, he's, he's took the chance with, with both hands, yeah, and uh, long may it continue. He's, got, he's obviously going to be playing the next three games, and uh, with a new fella coming in, he's, he's got even more points to prove, and maybe the bench may look a bit different if... Carl Fletcher likes the younger players, may see Rule on the bench, hopefully, and uh, may get some minutes. Who will he partner, Dennis? I'd, I'd, look, I'd like to see an Orient fan predict the next two lineups and get them 100% right, because you do very well. So um, we'll leave that to the more experienced people. Well, very, uh, yeah, very pleased for Matt Harold, and it was interesting. In fact, you may have heard Ross say after the game that, that he feels he should have given him a bit more, more game time this season. So there we are. Connor uh, was one of those new players this season who turned up to that uh, open evening at the club last night. It was the second in the series that the commercial department are running. The first one uh, pre-season, which, which featured the coaches. This one also had Martin Ling and Steve Foster, the chief scout there, which I, I thought was useful in the, in the sense that, uh, firstly, Martin could talk about the appointment of the new head coach, which he did very openly. And uh, they talked about the 
moving towards, looking towards the January transfer window. Um, the database of, of scout of players which they, they keep up and the, the scouting system and how it works, which is obviously very organised, even at a, a club like ours these days. Um, the five players all turned up, which, which was good. Um, the players on these sort of occasions, when they're, they're speaking in public, can get a bit sort of nervy and giggly, but I, I thought they did very well. Um, Lee, I, I was impressed with Josh Wright in particular, who described himself as a bit of a leader. He spoke very well, especially about that difficult time he had at Bradford last season. Yeah, well, Josh has come in uh, under extremely sad circumstances <laughs> for, for himself personally. Uh, and he's just, he's just a leader, isn't he? and he's... You can see how he's he's a leader amongst the camp. He's a uh, he's, he's one who who's stood up and and been counted. I think he's been he's been exceptional this season, or, or very good this season. Um, we noted before, in fact, that all the five newcomers, including George Marsh, um, were all midfield or attacking players, which is is clearly. Uh, wherein the main people had left from last season, but it was also uh, where where the management felt that we needed strengthening. Um, what about Connor and, and Lee Angle as a pair before before Lee got injured, and and then Louis Dennis, who's brought in a little bit later? It's a bit hard to, to judge. I mean, Connor got a lot of criticism when they were when they were playing as a pair. Since they've not, Connor's been really good. Had a really like, scored a few goals, so it's hard to judge how they are together. Uh, uh, I say it's certainly an interesting couple of strikers who, who, who individually have shown their worth. And and in midfield, Josh and and then George Marsh, who, who was left out the first couple of games, but has, has been brought in more regularly. Um, what have you made of those two in midfield? Yeah, well, like I said, I mean, I think Josh, is, I think the man at work, Josh has done. He, he's he's an absolute credit to himself. Like uh, George, yeah, like I said last night, it's his first time out on loans, so a first real experience of, of playing first-team football. I think he's adapted himself well. He's, he's a great little player, gets around the, uh, gets around the pitch and, and, and wins the ball. Trevor, how have you felt about the, uh, the new uh, entrance into midfield and, and George Marsh working with Josh and, and in particular? Yeah, I'm not uh, keen on Marsh because I know he battles for the ball well, likes a six, seven yard pass. I think that's why Gorman has come in to replace him in the starting lineup to uh, look for the killer ball going forward. It's all good being tidy in midfield. He likes a yellow card as well. Um, so I think that may be in Ross's thinking in replacing him. But then when he comes on for the 15 at the end, when we're sure and victory's up, then good. Right, he's a steady Eddie. He's chipped in with goals, which is important. Take him out, and we will probably miss him. Sometimes I feel like. Or you ain't seen him for 15 minutes in the game, but he may just his positional sense is good. And then the forwards, Connor, he's he's got the red card. It's gonna, they're both. I reckon Connor and Angol are gonna be challenging for the the number nine shirt if they've got one of those anymore instead of some obscene numbers. And then that's gonna be a real tough competition between them when they're both fully fit. Dennis, he's not played enough. Not played enough consistency. He's been very in and out. Like him, good touch. He's missed a few chances, though, so where the other boys have put their chances away. Well, there we are. That was, that was a good session at uh, Brisbane Road again last night. Um, they're going to have some more in future. Uh, it wouldn't be a surprise if, if the new manager was, uh, was among them. So uh, keep an eye out for those meetings and, and a, a good meal, too.
Now, we're into the second half of our programme already. Uh, Tony, it's high time we, we came back to you. Just just on the matter of, of those loan transfers, actually, you, you had loans all over the place, didn't you? Hull and Cardiff and Colchester. Was it, was it difficult fitting in, uh, especially if you know the loan is likely to be only temporary? Uh, it can be. It can be in terms of, you know, not realising how long you're going to be there. Uh, it's difficult because, especially if you've gone on loan uh, with a view to moving, with a view to getting a permanent move, and obviously you've only got four weeks uh, to prove yourself and hopefully do the business, so you do get that permanent move. So, yeah, you, you're, you're a little bit under pressure. Uh, so, yeah, it can be difficult. And also fitting in with the squad, etc. You know, you're a newcomer, etc. So, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily easy to, to come on loan for a short period. Yeah. And one of the points which uh, Ross made about why Orient actually in the last couple of years haven't made a lot of use of, of mm. the loan system, given that there are a lot of bigger London clubs who are looking to let players out. One of the points he made was it's very important that a player should fit into the dressing room, especially a young player who you can imagine coming from the Premier League mm. these days, a Premier League club used to facilities at a club like Tottenham. Mm. And they have to settle in to, to the club as well as to, say, League Two football, don't they? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's a good point because um, I was just talking to the lads then about I was doing security at Tottenham's training ground for three years. And, um, you know, you look at some of the young players, um, you know, on release day when they've got released before their pro contract. Um, parents up in arms and all that, thinking their players, you know, their, their kid's going to be, you know, the next superstar. And then, then realisation hits home. They're, they're going to go and have to play non-league football or League One or League Two. Uh, but to some, if they haven't got the right attitude... They'll turn up at League One or League Two or Conference thinking that they're the, you know, the B's and E's, when the reality is you wasn't good enough to be turned pro at 18 at Tottenham, so here you are. Now you've got to start again. So, yeah, the attitude is, is massive when it comes to young players. Well, let's talk, take you back um, over your, your whole career and, and the problems... You've got that time. Found. Yeah. Yes, we've got, <laughs> we've got 20 minutes. Uh, but uh, tell us a bit about, first of all, your background and, and what was quite a footballing family, wasn't it? And mm. how you got started. Yeah, it's a bit um, different route. Uh, normal stuff of playing school football in Coventry, growing up in Coventry. Um, and then my brother was playing for, my older brother was playing for Bristol Rovers uh, with Keith Curl and Gary Mabber and Ian Holloway and Tony Pulis. That was the old squad then days. Um, and he got me a trial. Me, well, me and my twin brother, he got us a trial uh, down at Bristol Rovers with Bobby Gould. That did, we didn't get through that trial, but we managed to, he managed to fix up another trial with Bristol City with Terry Cooper. Um, and we got taken on as YTS uh, from 16. So we moved to Bristol. Um, and it's a bit of a strange journey from there for me. Um, my twin got released quite early after about eight months or so. Um, so unfortunately, then he went on to play non-league football for 10 years. But I actually became the youngest player to play for Bristol City. First team, 16 in 244 days. Um, that, that stood for, I think, 15 years. I think someone, I think it was Marvin Brown or something that, that broke the record about 10 years ago. Um, so the future was bright. Uh, I was going to obviously, you know, go on to, you know, play my professional football at Bristol City and get a professional contract to Bristol City. But like I just touched upon a minute ago about attitude with young players and, and you know, you look back now, reflect now, yeah, and I can, I can see, but my attitude stunk, to be honest with you. I was, um, <laughs> I was clumbing it with the senior pros at 17, thinking I've made it because I'm the youngest player, i played for the first team, etc., and basically, I was Terry Cooper called me in one day and said, you know, Tony, you know, you've got all the ability in the world, but your attitude stinks, so we're going to release you. Uh, so I didn't even get a professional contract to Bristol City. Went back to Coventry and uh, joined uh, Graham Carr at Nuneatonborough and uh, played for Nuneatonborough and Leamington, a few non-league clubs. 
People will say, how could you let that happen? You, you were mm. living the dream of thousands <clears throat> of kids all over the world. You're being mm. paid to play football. How could you just not take it seriously enough? Well, paid to play football, yeah, we're on 25 quid a week, yeah, so I was, I was YTS, yeah. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's a strange thing when I look back in terms of, yeah, the opportunities there. Um, yeah, after, after May, I think I played seven times as a 16, 17-year-old in the first team. Um, but I think I, I didn't handle the, the hype of it all. Um, so when I started to, you know, get carried away with myself and, like I said, you know, mixing with the senior pros and going nightclub when I was 17, I was living in lodgings, as you do when you go away. Um, and, and that's connected to the football club, so they report back to the football club on your behaviour, etc. And so my reports weren't very good. Um, but I was one of them people that even when I got released and went back into non-league football, it's something I talked to about, you know, I just touched upon a minute ago about young players. It's not the end of the road, you know. The guys sitting in the studio here will know that. There's a long list of players that have come out of non-league football. The list goes on forever. Uh, so... In, that, in those terms, I always wanted to be a footballer. I was determined to be a footballer. And uh, so I, I just said to myself, you know what? I'll go into long league football. I'll cut my cloth. And uh, hopefully one day someone will, you know, will spot me. Well, they did again. Yep. Uh, we'll come to that in a minute. But mm. you came to London. At what, mm. what stage uh, did the gambling start in either a minor or a major way? In a minor way, it started when I was 18, when I moved to London. I signed for Dulwich Hamlet. Um, Andy Gray, Alan Pardew, that was the old squad them days. We had a good team. Um, I was 18 playing the first team. But right next door to the uh, football club, Dulwich Hamlet, was an old bookmakers called, called Mecca Bookmakers. I'll never forget it. And uh, we talk about reasons why people start gambling. You know, there's many, many different reasons. You know, we can go back to childhood, we can go back to trauma, we can go back to lots of different reasons. Mine was one of fitting in, coming in from Coventry. I was quite shy, um, fitting in with the, these 22, 23-year-old players that used to have a five-pound bet, uh, football accumulator on the, on the coupon on a Saturday. So I wanted to sort of fit in, in a way, um, with, with what we call so-called clicking football. And there was a group of lads having a little bet, so I, I clicked with them, and basically that was my way of fitting in and feeling part of the group. Um, and it's sort of, that's when the actual gambling actually started, you know, back, back then when I was 18. Um, purely, purely <coughs> football or mainly sports? Yeah, pure football. Didn't know, didn't know, didn't know anything about greyhounds or, or casinos or horses. No, it was strictly football. Uh, but you did get an, another very big footballing chance. As, as you've said, you went on mm. to Stoke City. And how did that come about? That came about, um, so I moved from Dulwich to Chesham, then Chesham to Enfield and Enfield St Albans. And then at St Albans, I got spotted by uh, Alan Ball. God bless him. And... Before um, I went to Stoke, I'd, I went to Southampton for two weeks uh, with Alan Shearer and Letizia, etc. And Chris Nicholl wanted to sign me, um, but unfortunately the, they wanted 100 grand, St Albans, which them days back then in 1990 is a hell of a lot of money for a non-league player. And so, you know, I fell out with the club because they blocked the move, etc. And then the next, the ne I said to the chairman of St Albans that, you know, if anyone else comes in for me, please let me go in terms of, you know, dropping the price. So, yeah, I went to Stoke for 40 grand, um, yeah, 1990. Yeah, and that was the start of my, as, as I said before, about getting a second chance. Mm. And, and it became a very successful time, didn't it? The, the old mm. third division title, played at Wembley and scored at Anfield. I'm sure you'd like to remind us about that goal. <laughs> yeah, I'm still dying now on that one, yeah. But it was a great, yeah, I've had some good memories, obviously. Um, eight and a half years of pro, yeah, you know. Obviously, the addiction is, is something that's uh, well documented. But in terms of the football career, uh, I would probably say 
I definitely lost five years to the game. I think it was 30 when I, when I left um, Leighton Orient. So I definitely lost five years to the game because I went back into non-league after Leighton Orient. Um, but yeah, some great memories at Stowe, scoring at Anfield in the last minute. Yeah, 2-2 two, two draw uh, on YouTube. So yeah, enjoy looking at that now and again. Um, and also, yeah, Wembley. Yeah, Mark Steen scoring the winner, 1-0. Yeah, Wembley, yeah, 70-odd thousand. So yeah, I've had some great memories. Yeah, can't, you can't take the memories away, no. What will you remember most of, of the Orient times? It wasn't a very that full season, which you played a lot. It wasn't a very successful season in, in the fourth division, was it? Although, remember old Colin West knocked in a lot of goals that season? Yeah, the first season, it's strange. I think I remember looking at the Football League Extra and I think 12 games were like in the top three and we were absolutely flying. West was scoring goals, Alex Singlethorpe scoring goals, I scored a few. And we had some good young players as well. So we had a good squad. And, you know, the, I think the hopes were high for in terms of promotion that year, but for some reason... I, I can't even put my finger on it to be honest with you, but for some reason we, we didn't uh, continue and progress to you know be real contenders. Uh, but we did have a good squad, there's no doubt about it. We did have a good squad. And I enjoyed my time at Orient two years um, with Pat Holland and obviously Tommy and Barry and Chairman. Yeah, we had you know we had some good times. We had the Razzmatazz when Barry took over with the old red carpet. So yeah, it was some good times. Mm. And, and from what you were saying, did it actually affect your game, whether or not how the gambling <coughs> was going, whether you were winning money or losing money? Mm. Did that physically actually affect how you were playing on the pitch? Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, I mean, you look back through my career, every club I've been at, and you'll see that um, I've been in and out of the side, um, you know, whether it's 20 games a season, etc. Um, and as I said before, managers couldn't quite work it out you know, from one week to the next. Uh, and that's just, just the mental side of it in terms of, you know, not sleeping, not getting a good night's sleep because I'm worried about how I'm going to pay the mortgage the next day. Um, going on to the pitch or going into training, worrying if your accumulators come in for that day. And obviously there's, there's lots of other issues that come with gambling addiction that people don't realise. And obviously all those issues, whether it's debt, whether it's uh, health issues, whether it's family issues, whether it's, you know, friendship and family issues, there's, there's lots of reasons um, how it affects you mentally. So, yeah, throughout my career... Um, I didn't talk to anyone about it, didn't tell anyone about it, I stayed in denial. And so, yeah, it affected my uh, performance. So did that mean, if you weren't talking about it, that you weren't really getting any help? Um, I, I would say, as opposed to today, because we're talking 19, probably 90 to 99, 2000, there's more help now. Um, back then, the strange thing about gambling back then, um, 90s and, and even the late 80s, um, many people know, some people have talked about in the media before about uh, the dreaded card schools on the coach on the way back from away games, the hotel card schools in the hotel rooms when we're playing away. Um, and I'll, I'll just remember incidences where you know, you'll always have a group of players, you know, where it's five, six, seven players. You'll always have a group of players that like a bet, yeah? And the thing that sort of sticks out in my mind, which is quite shocking when you think about it now, is the card schools, you know, managers were joining, chairmen were joining, directors were joining. So it was like normalised. So that, that's how it was. That's how it was back then. But you can't imagine that happening now. We, we did mm -hmm. used to hear actually about uh, mm -hmm. the England players, for mm -hmm. instance, but maybe a little bit later when they're earning more money mm -hmm. uh, and, and putting down what seemed quite frightening amounts of money. Yeah, it is scary. And, and <clears throat> I always say about... I know we talk about, yeah, the amounts of money that, yeah, the England players were in or, or whatever, or us as players in the 90s, etc. But generally, it doesn't really matter how much you earn. You know, we have students blowing their student loans today. We have people on GSA getting evicted from their flats. It, it's absolutely irrelevant in, terms, irrelevant in terms of how much money you actually earn. You know, gambling addiction is gambling addiction and it can affect you regardless of how much you earn and what background you come from.
is it possible to estimate how much you think you might actually have lost overall? Yeah, I know I've roughly lost about half a million pounds, including the property, including the house, yeah, over that 10-year period. Um, and I always say to people that I'm lucky uh, because I've learned, obviously, a lot more about addiction over the last two or three years. Uh, so I know what's happened to other people in terms of, you know, going to prison or in terms of suicide, or in terms of, you know, dependent on, on drugs for the rest of their life. So I'm quite lucky that I'm sitting here talking to you, to be honest with you, Steve. So, you know, I'm happy. Yeah, I'm happy I've turned the corner. I'm, you know, I'm fortunate to come out the other side. Thousands don't. Uh, so, yeah, I count myself as lucky, to be honest with you. So, so how did you manage to start, even start turning that corner? It, it was it more or less started, there's, there's, it's a culmination of things, but one of them is the fact when the book came out in 2014, the feedback I got from the book, um, and then setting up the Red Card Project, which is my um, organisation, Red Card Gambling Sport Project, um, that was a start coupled with counselling. Um, you can't, you're not going to wake up in the morning one day after being a gambler or a problem gambler and decide you're not going to bet because it's already ingrained in you. You know, it's already part of your makeup. So you have to get professional help. Uh, so I've got professional help. Um, and, and obviously, fortunately for me, again, another part of it is I've got good support. So I've got family network, massive family. Uh, they supported me. So there's others that are isolated and they're maybe just on their own. So which makes it more difficult. So yeah, so after the, after the counselling, after writing the book and coming out publicly, which is another tool I use in terms of uh, personal therapy, uh, talking about it, because it really helps. And I always say to people that, you know, it is one of the hardest things to do, to actually talk about it and acknowledge it. You know, that's very, very difficult, but I'm fortunate that I've been able, I've been able to talk about it for the last two, three, four years, openly to everybody and anybody. <laughs> I won't shut up about it, to be honest with you. But yeah, but it's, it's helped me a lot, so... Yeah, so there's a culmination of things that have got me to where I am today in terms of um, education awareness and helping others. That, that's your book, Red Card, The Soccer Star Who Lost It All to Gambling, which is, mm. is well, worth, well worth looking up. And, mm. and how does the, the support project actually work? Do people just get in touch and what happens then? Yeah, well, we have the website um, and people contact us through the website. Some people email us, some people call us. Uh, and our main focus of our work is all about education, awareness, prevention. So we go to various organisations, uh, predominantly schools, but we do everything from rehab centres to youth projects to charities, and we deliver workshops on all aspects of gambling. Because, as I said before, there's a lot of issues that are related to gambling that people don't talk about. I think a lot of people just think of the monetary side of it, but there's a lot more to it than that. There's mm. been quite a lot of controversy recently about mm. gambling and advertising, hasn't there? I mean, what do you feel from just from a football point of view about mm. the number of clubs who, for instance, have betting firms on, on yeah. shirts? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's another big problem that the government are trying to deal with. I think there's nine Premiership League clubs. I think there's 16 Championship League clubs sponsored by um, betting firms. Uh, we've had red card. I've had um, a little bit of resistance in terms of working with one or two of the operators, you know, i.e. Bet365, which, you know, I don't mind saying it, you know, they need to do more in terms of, you know, education awareness, uh, like the other operators. So the sponsorship and advertising, hopefully um, in the next year or two, the government will get to a point where, you know, we can get rid of that because you've got, you know, thousands and thousands of kids going to games and asking their dad, what does that mean? You know, their dad's going into the, into the mobile bookies, which are in a lot of stadiums that people don't realise about and having their better half time. So, yeah, there's a lot of things that people don't realise actually go on in football stadiums. And, and did I re read that you will still have an occasional bet yourself? Yeah, I always say to people, you've got to be true to yourself. That's one thing I always have been. Um, I, will have, I, will, I could say I could go two weeks without a bet, 
or I could put, spend £10 accumulator, but I'll never say... To you. I've heard people come and say, oh, I haven't had a bet for five years and all that. And to them, that's fantastic. You know, to me, uh, it may be a case that I might bet for the rest of my life. Who knows? Uh, but you have to put prevention tools in place. Uh, obviously, my experience has allowed me to be where I am in terms of controlling everything. I think the biggest achievement, I'd say, in terms of knowing uh, that I've beat it, uh, for now would be the money that we've received from the uh, lottery uh, and being the head of the organisation the money obviously is under my control now if I were to say for instance uh, we received a £10,000 from the, not the lottery uh, I'm in control of that money because I have to pay facilitator fees for my team we have to pay travel expenses materials different things a million and one things um, if you were to give me that five, six, seven years ago it might have lasted a month you know, that, that's, that's when, that's the achievement that I know, great, I've beat it. Now, now I'm responsible for other people's money and I can run a project uh, know, knowing that. And that's, and that's what I said, you have to put prevention tools in place, uh, which is what I've managed to do and control it. Have you had, without obviously naming names, have you mm. had footballers or people in sport who've come to you? Uh, one or two, one or two through LinkedIn. Um, and we've met with other people ex-players, uh, players that I played with in the past that have come out and told me that they were gambling or they had a problem back in the 90s and all that but couldn't actually come out, uh, come out of denial and talk about it. And, I, and I've just said to them, I understand that because there's thousands of people that can't actually come out of it and they do stay in denial for years. Uh, but I always say to people now in terms of advice that yeah, you've got to find the strength um, to come out and, and talk to someone, whether it's a family member, whether it's... Uh, a colleague at work, whoever it is, come out and, and talk to somebody because, you know, you will eventually, I always say to people that you can, you can have a lucky week, you can have a lucky day, but long-term, long-term gambling will, will destroy you long-term. That's, that's my opinion. Right, well, give us the details uh, very slowly of, of the website for anybody who, who might want to get in touch. Yeah, it's www.kellysredcarconsultancy.co.uk. That's the website. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn and also Facebook. Excellent. Mm. Okay, well, thanks for all that. Um, the, mm. other, uh, the other great uh, subject that's cropped up this week, of course, Trevor, is, is the whole subject of, of racism mm. in football again. Yeah, it's mm. uh, been very prevalent this week with England playing in Bulgaria and well documented. Some of it may have been built up by our press, but it's still a relevant subject. And mm. obviously, the era you played in, Tony. Yeah. Um, mm. I guess it, I think the 90s, you would hope it was getting better because watching football in the 80s, it was diabolical. And, mm. uh, and I have to also say on a, on a sad note, it's still around in the 2000s because uh, there was a, an incident at Telford in the FA Trophy this year involving an Orient fan. I had to tap on the shoulder. <laughs> and uh, yeah, well, we'll leave that there. But yourself personally, was it prevalent? Yeah, I think back in the 90s, when I, when I turned pro in 1990, um, games, there would be games where there'd be isolated instances where there'd be, you know, individual comments. So, and also playing, playing a lot of the time as a right winger, you're right by the crowd, so you can hear everything. Uh, and you would get, you know, one or two comments, you UF in this, UF in that, you know. Uh, but I don't, I would say that I didn't get you know, abuse in terms of a whole group or a whole section of, of supporters. It was more like, you know, individuals that were just shouting out, you know, uh, one or two racist comments. That's probably mm. some of the times when you've gone on loan, mm. you can hear everything. In, when we visited non-league for the mm. last two years, you can hear everything in a 3,000 crowd. So yeah. it, it can obviously become a bit of a problem. But mm. in the 80s, it was groups 
of chanting, wasn't it? And it yeah. Obviously, now in the 90s and what we see this week was groups chanting. I mean, exactly. individual yeah. comments. Did you ever feel that you wanted to go and have a word with them? Yeah, you felt that way. But I think, I don't know, it's, it's hard to explain when, you, when you're there and you heard it. You know, part of you wants to, like, you know, get off the pitch and go and do something about it. Or, but you, you know you can't. Uh, you have to take it. Uh, when, and obviously nothing was said by the, the, the bench or the coaches or the managers. You know, no, nothing, nothing was ever said or nothing was talked about. So there was no uh, backup, so to speak. Uh, but it's sad that, you know, even, even in the 70s, uh, when it was absolutely rife, you know, to now, and we're talking 50 years, you know, we're still having these conversations. That, that's, what, that's what saddens me, you know, in terms of we haven't, you know, we haven't moved on. You know, in terms of, you know, whether, yeah, people talk about education awareness, but it's more than that. You know, we're getting to a point now where it's a very, very serious issue. And we're getting to the point now where, you know, the governing bodies, whether it's FIFA, UEFA, the FA, all of them, you know, they need to all collectively get together and say, right, this is it. You know, now we're actually seriously going to do some something about it and put a stop to this. Because otherwise, it will just be, you know, a few little sanctions here and there. And, and on we go. Whether, whether a lot of these heads of the governing bodies are in their 60s and 70s or traditionalists and, you know, are still living in the dark, dark ages, I don't know, you know, but we're in the real world now, we're in the 20th century, so at the end of the day, I think that it may be a case of that this may, may have to go, you know, above the governing bodies and to government and for government to actually put things in place, um, you know, to, to work alongside these governing bodies and say, right, this is, because, you know, at the end of the day, the government have the power to do anything, uh, so, yeah, something's got to change because, uh, as you said, Lee, little fines here and there make no difference whatsoever. You know, they're, they're not sanctions. They're nothing. Banning someone for six months, no. You know, in terms of the Bulgaria situation, uh, I've heard a lot of players speak and a lot of managers speak you know, this week. Uh, and I would. I would actually, you know, put a stance and say, right, let's, let's kick them out of the competition. You know, and that, this will go for European football clubs as well. You know, you've got you've to do something that's going to make people sit up and think, right, OK, we, 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 this has got to stop. We're not going to do this anymore. You know? Uh, do the governing bodies like I mean and, and our FA in particular mm. I mean like watching it last week you felt sort of after all, hearing all the, uh, the talk of walking off games mm. and then nothing happening you think to yourself are they just putting money before the actual resolving this issue right? in terms of the players or the well the, not the players no, they do. Like the, uh, the FA the FA for example not turning around and going to players right off like come on let's go off yeah and then, and then Putting, the, putting that problem onto UEFA, onto FIFA. Mm. So we walked, we walked off this pitch. What are you going to do about it now? Yeah, I, I, I actually think it was a little bit of a missed opportunity uh, the other night in terms of they had, they had the protocol in place. Something I don't agree with anyway in terms of giving people <laughs> three chances. You know, like, you know you've, you've heard people talk about it in terms of, you know, if you're punching the face, oh, I'll have another punch, have another punch. Yeah, no, the, that's the protocol I don't agree with anyway. Um, but... The missed opportunity is difficult for the players, um, but I think they, they, because before this, one or two players, I think Sterling, one or two players, were actually saying that, you know, if this happens again, we're going to walk off the pitch. So I think the other night, uh, after the first uh, bout of chanting, uh, and I think Gareth had a chat with my half-time, I think collectively, 
the players who are being abused should have said, look, you know, no, we're not, we're not going back out again. We're going to make a stance right here and now. Uh, and that, I think that would have made the FA uh, and, and the governing bodies sit up and take notice. Mm. I, just, mm. like I, said, I mean, mm. I just think the FA should have, should have overruled what the players... I mean, the players yeah, I know what you're saying. Mm. The country. I just personally think the FA should have made that decision. Boys, off you come. Yeah, and, and they and they, and they could have done that. Yeah, they have they have the power to do it. They could have done that, and so that's what I mean about yeah, it's a missed opportunity. Can I just mm. add in there? Yeah, the, I think the FA themselves are at fault because I have a friend who coaches and he, he's, he's up in the England things and he goes to Wembley, mm. and uh, he walked into one of the halftime cups of tea, and uh, he's a black fella. Mm. And uh, he went to the buffet and everybody sort of stopped. I know you can't see what I'm saying. And they've got their cups of tea and they're all looking at him. This is 10, 12 years ago. Yeah. And then a quite famous left back of England come in and he went, all right. And everybody went, ah, he knows him. <laughs> in other words, this black guy's walked into an all white situation at the yeah. FA. Yeah. And he has to put up with that. Yeah. Is, wow. is, I've seen it firsthand because mm. I've been football with a fellow watching England. Mm. And the looks he gets, looks proud as punch when he's in shit. I can't believe yeah. it still actually goes on in our football grounds. Yeah, within the actual event. The rest of yeah. Europe is a disgrace, we know that. But mm. in our football grounds, it should be coming to the end because mm. I, I, I worked for the Royal Mail for years mm. and the guys I used to work with there in the 80s mm. all went football. Mm. And to sit in the stands and hear that and you're sitting there. Yeah. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. It's shocking that we've come, we've and come this far. And the one thing I would say now about mm. Orient is our community is now more and more looking like the football club. Everybody's welcome in there. Yeah. And you see all around the ground now that we've got a decent community and along that may continue. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. Mm. Well, Tony, thanks for, for sharing all those thoughts with us. Mm. Um, all, the, all those clubs you had, you can't still look out for all the results, but mm. uh, any, any, any scores that you do look out for still? I'm a hometown club, and it's a bit, you know, shameful to say they're struggling, uh, Coventry. But I always look out for my hometown club. That's where I grew up. Um, and obviously, the, the O's and Stoke, the two the two clubs I spent the longest time at, and obviously Berry as well. Berry is a shame. Um, I had two years at Berry uh, with Mike Walsh. Uh, yeah, and it's a shame what's happened to them. And you know, again, that's down to financial situation. And you know, I think a lot of the lower league clubs have got to be very careful how they how they you know run their clubs in the next few months. Brilliant. Well, thanks for sharing all that with us. Uh, we're out of time almost. Uh, next up for the O's, as we mentioned, Grimsby on Saturday, Plymouth next Tuesday. Be very interesting to see how Carl Fletcher will get on there. Uh, it's also FA Cup draw, don't forget. Uh, it's on Talk Sport at lunchtime, I believe, on, uh, on Monday. So it'll be interesting to see who we get there. Remember those days of FA Cup semi-finals, etc. But back to reality, interesting times at Orient. Many thanks to Trevor and to Lee and to Tony Kelly. The Orient Hour will be on Phoenix FM again, 7pm next Thursday. On the hour, across Brentwood and 